Good morning. Good to see each of you with me this morning. Take your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1 in just a moment. Christmas is one of the few celebrations that most of America wholeheartedly embraces. It's a federal holiday, which practically means everyone in America celebrates it. So it's hardly surprising that the media and the secularizing influences in our country have sought to drain Christmas of any religious significance by purging it from it, anything that might be considered religious. There seems to be a concerted effort to omit any expression of religion from our public schools and from our public square. And it's especially apparent during the Christmas season. For example, religious Christmas carols are, are rarely sang in public school programs anymore. And the traditional, even the traditional Christmas greeting, Merry Christmas, is being replaced by the politically correct Happy Holidays in many of our shopping centers and stores. Henry Tatum, writing in the Dallas Morning News, uh, took note of that su- some subtle changes. He says, far more damaging to the religious foundations of Christmas are those who have subtly shifted the emphasis without ever making a public statement or going to court. They simply stopped using the word Christmas in any reference to this time of year. Instead, the word is holiday. We now have a holiday season, holiday decorations, and a holiday tree in the city hall. Christmas has become the C word, a name we all know but feel uncomfortable mentioning in mixed company. He goes on to make a statement about why he thinks this has happened. America has become a nation of people who don't want to offend anyone. And references to the holidays instead of Christmas are aimed at being more acceptable to those who are not Christians. What is surprising is how passive those have been who profess to hold Christian beliefs. The shift in the message has been made so quietly and gradually that there hasn't even been a fight. One day we had Christmas. The next we had a holiday break. Every Christmas, the so-called secular community starts shrieking whenever they hear any mention of religion being brought into the public eye. You all know about the fights over the nativity scenes on the courtyard squares even occurred here in our state in 2012, an anonymous parent tried to stop a production of a Charlie Brown Christmas at a grade school in Little Rock by appealing to the Arkansas Society for Three Free Thinkers. Their attorney, Ann Orsini, filed a lawsuit in which she said the problem is that it's got religious content and it's being performed in a religious venue. And that doesn't just blur the line between church and state, it oversteps it entirely. But lest you be worried, she added, but we're not saying there's anything wrong with Charlie Brown. I know that'll make you feel better. So what should be our response to the 
life-changing acceptance of Christmas. More than ever, I think we need to recommit ourselves to the knowledge of the facts of the Christmas story because it really happened. Our faith doesn't rest on vague speculations nor on legend, but upon sober historical fact. Brother Bobby has led us already through reading Luke chapter 2, and so I want to just take you there, and I want us to see three things about this particular passage of Scripture. First of all, I want us to look at the census, verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governed Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Well, first I want you to notice it says, and it came to pass. The story begins simply with those words, and it came to pass. Literally, in the Greek text, it says, and it came to be, or it happened. But I don't want you to get the mistaken idea that Jesus' birth is just something that happened. In fact, the sovereign degree and plan of God was being minutely worked out in every detail. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So it is at just the right time in history, the birth of Jesus occurred exactly as and when God the Father had established. It was the right time politically. The Roman Empire was at its height. Its roads were enabling the messengers of the gospel to carry uh, the message throughout the known world. And a stable form of government made peace possible and travel relatively safe. It was also the right time culturally. The Roman and the Greek influences had unified the world. Koine Greek had become the common language of trade throughout the known world. And it was the right time spiritually. The world was diverse with its many religions, but men were searching because it had become obvious that all the old religions were dead and empty. The world, that the world would be registered. It was at this time that Caesar Augustus decreed that a census was to be taken. Now, the King James Version of the Bible says, and there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And that's correct. Although the word itself actually means a census, the purpose of that census was that it would provide the emperor with a list of names which would be used to collect taxes. Perhaps it would be better to understand that that when it says in the text that Caesar decreed that the whole world should be registered, that what the emperor ordered was not one census, but rather a regular system of census taking. And with that money that he raises through taxes, Emperor Augustus will build the mighty Roman Empire. So all over Israel, families were traveling in the dead of winter. Some were going from south to Hebron 
and Beersheba. Some were going north to Capernaum. And many were going to Jerusalem. Joseph, however, was headed to a small village about six miles south of Jerusalem, a place called Bethlehem. It, was, it would be hard to find a more out-of-the-way place, a more out-of-the-way town in Judea. Bethlehem had only one claim to fame, and that was over a thousand years earlier, the greatest king of Israel who had ever lived, King David, was born there. The second thing that I want you to note is the journey in verses 3 through 5. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. God, in his infinite wisdom, has worked out every detail of Jesus' birth. He has arranged it so that Jesus would not be born in the home of his parents in Nazareth. But as had been foretold by the prophets in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he would be born in Bethlehem. So it came about that Joseph had to make to take his very pregnant wife to his hometown of Bethlehem. Little, I suspected, Emperor Augustus or his governor Quirinius realized that they were only carrying out the eternal purposes of God. It was a long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They couldn't go the short way because that would take them through Samaria, And good Jews don't go through Samaria. So to get from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south, you had to travel east to the Jordan River, follow the valley south to Jericho, and then west up the Jericho Road through the mountains to Jerusalem, and then a little quick jog south to Bethlehem. Traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, some hundred miles or so, through some of the most desolate country on the earth. Mary was pregnant, and she was at that stage that you ladies can identify with where you just can't get comfortable no matter what you do. For Mary, it was miserable. Every time she stood up, she wanted to sit down. Every time stand up, walking hurt, standing hurt, Sitting hurts, lying down hurts, eating is hard, and breathing isn't much better. <clears throat> so in, now in her ninth month, she rides a donkey on a rough path by the River Jordan headed to Bethlehem. And the third thing I want you to see is the birth. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In Luke's gospel, this is basically all the information that we have concerning the circumstances of Jesus' birth. 
It's almost as if it were no big deal, like nobody cared. And in fact, that's probably the way it was. First of all, look at the day of delivery came. As to when the day of his birth occurred, we know that there is no real evidence that Jesus was born on December the 25th. And what little evidence we do have indicates that probably is not the date. We are told in Luke chapter 2 verse 8 that the announcement of his birth was made to shepherds while they were abiding in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This was only true during spring and summer months between March and September. We observe Jesus' birth on December the 25th because it was the date that the early church agreed upon. But we're not worshiping a day. We're worshiping the Savior who was born on that day. Notice also a firstborn son. It's worthy of note that it says that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, not her only child, not even her only son. Mary was not a perpetual virgin all of her life, as some would have us to believe. After Mary had Jesus, she continued to bear children, the natural children of her marriage to Joseph. The fact that Jesus had brothers is attested in Scripture, Matthew chapter 12 and verses 46 and 47. And in fact, the names, at least some of Jesus' brothers, are given in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. He had also at least two sisters because in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 56, the plural is used to describe his sisters. It also says that he was laid in a manger. Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine, built a church on the presumed site of the birth of Jesus. The present church was built by Justinian. In its interior, the steps on either side of the altar lead to a cave below where the supposed birthplace of Jesus is indicated by a star. Did the stable in which the infant was born actually stand there? Well, it can neither be proven or disproven and is not really very important. One thing is certain, the glitter and the splendor and the aroma of the present day site do not truly represent the circumstances about when the child was born. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that our Lord was born in a stable among animals and laid in a feeding trough as a bed. There was no room for him in the inn. The fact that there was no room reminds us of John chapter 1 and verse 11, which states, And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Quite prophetically, this began on the very first Christmas night. For the innkeeper told Joseph that there was no room for them in the inn. From our modern perspective, it's pretty easy to criticize the innkeeper for turning Mary and Joseph away. 
But he was not necessarily mean or hard-hearted. There's no indication that he was unsympathetic. He was nothing more than a small-town businessman who had run out of rooms to rent. The innkeeper was busy. So also, there are hearts that never welcomed Jesus in our day, not because they definitely hate him, but simply because they allow their hearts to be too full of other concerns. But if he had only known who Jesus was, that's the whole point. If he had only known, he didn't know. Nobody in Bethlehem knew what was about to happen. So let's readdress that question I asked during the introduction. What should our response to the changing acceptance of Christmas be? Now more than ever, we need to reaffirm our basic faith that it really happened. There really was a Caesar Augustus who issued a call for a census. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was real. It was long, it was difficult, and it was dangerous. Mary was both a virgin and pregnant. Joseph really was going home for Christmas. Bethlehem was a small and insignificant town and the inn really was full. Jesus was born in a stable. He took his first nap in a feeding trough. Those things are not legends. They are not myths. They are not holiday fairy tales. This is how it really happened. When God decided to enter our world, he took a most unusual route. Jesus really was born in poverty to Jewish parents in a forgotten village in a stable. Unexpected and mostly unnoticed, the Son of God came from heaven. Because it really happened, our faith does not rest on vague speculations. No, it rests on sober historical fact. And because the story is real, it is not just a heartwarming legend that you can choose to believe or disbelieve. So in conclusion, let me just say, please hear me. I am not saying that everyone must celebrate Christmas. We don't want to force people who are not Christians to celebrate Christmas. I'm not saying go belligerent on everybody who says to you, happy holidays. Just merely answer with Merry Christmas. This season, go out of your way to be friendly when you're out shopping, to stressed out sales clerks and to other customers who are out of time and out of money and out of patience. First of all, believe it. The good news about the birth of the Savior is historically true. We just need to convince ourselves and say to ourselves, it really happened, and I believe it. And then we can take the story of Bethlehem, and we can tell folks that we meet good news, 
Merry Christmas. It really happened. Joy to the world. The Savior has come. And then we can share it as the message of hope. Sometimes what we can do is we can share that message of hope through a random act of kindness. You don't have to preach to people. You can show them Jesus in the way that you relate to them. I would close with this story about one woman's attempt to do so. She says, I am the mother of three, ages 14, 12, and 3. My husband, youngest son, and I went out to McDonald's one crisp March morning. It was just our way of sharing special time with our son. We're standing in line waiting to be served when all of a sudden everyone around us began to back away. I didn't move an inch. An overwhelming feeling of panic welled up inside of me as I turned to see why everyone else had moved. As I turned around, I smelled a horrible, dirty body smell. And there, standing behind me, were two poor, homeless men. As I looked down at the short gentleman close to me, he was smiling. He had beautiful sky-blue eyes, which were full of God's light as he searched for acceptance. He said, good day, as he counted the few coins that he had been clutching. The second man fumbled with his hands as he stood behind his friends, and it became obvious that he was mentally deficient, and the blue-eyed gentleman was his salvation. I held my tears as I stood there with them. The young lady at the counter asked him what he wanted, and he said, coffee is all, miss because it was apparent that that was all that he could afford. And to sit in a restaurant and warm up, they had to buy something. They just wanted to be warm. And then I felt it. The compulsion was so great, I almost reached out and embraced the little man with blue eyes. That's when I noticed all eyes in the restaurant were set on me, judging my every action. I smiled and asked the young lady behind the counter to give me two more breakfast meals on a separate tray. I then walked around the corner to the table that those two men had chosen as a resting place. I put the tray on the table and laid my hand on the blue-eyed gentleman's cold hand. He looked up at me with tears in his eyes and said, thank you. And I leaned over and said to him, I didn't do this for you. God is here working through me to give you hope. And that's what we want to give people this Christmas season is hope. One man has written the season of Advent means there is something on the horizon the likes of which we have never seen before. What is possible is it is not to see it, to miss it, to turn just as it brushes past you. So stay, sit, linger, tarry, Ponder, wait, behold, wonder. There will be time enough for running and for rushing, for worrying and for pushing. But for now, stop, wait, and consider Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that Jesus... And seen it to stoop down from heaven, leave the glories and greatness of heaven to take on human form. 
And he did so in order that he might pay for our sins, that he might be our substitute. Father, there may be someone here this morning that has never really come under the grip of what it means to celebrate Christmas. For to celebrate Christmas means that we have to realize that Jesus came, that he lived a life free of sin, And then he graciously went to the cross and paid not for his sin, but for our sin. And that all we need to do is accept that payment. The greatest gift ever given is the gift that Christ has given to us. Lord, if there's one here that does not know you, then Lord, I pray that they might realize that they are sinners. And that right here in the quietness of this place, they can turn to you. They can recognize that they are sinners and they can simply ask that you would save them, forgive them of their sins, ask Jesus to be their Savior. For those of us who are saved, remind us again of the great sacrifice that has been made. We don't worship a baby in a stable, we don't even worship a man on a cross. We worship a a risen and living Savior. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.